All right. Today we're going to be reading out of Matthew chapter 4, verses 17, and we'll be finishing in the first part of chapter 5. Today we're going to, Pastor Bruce is going to be starting a new series on the Sermon on the Mount, but we are going to be reading a little bit before to see what happened before. So follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 17 of chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the, kingdom of, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two older brothers, other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in his synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and we thank you for this time to gather in this place to worship you, be challenged by you, and more often just to worship you once again for your son who has so graciously sacrificed himself for us, God. I pray that you would give Pastor Bruce the words to speak and that we would be challenged this morning. pray these things in your name. Amen. As Jeremy said, we are beginning a brand new sermon series this morning on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I am super excited about this series. In fact, I'm as excited about this series as any that we have ever done here at LifeBridge. Uh, this is by far and away Jesus' most famous sermon. And I think it's going to be incredibly relevant for us as Christ followers here today. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is so famous, so practical, so powerful, so relevant, that we can hardly overstate its influence. After all, Jesus is the one who preached it. In fact, notice this in your notes coming up on the, on the screen behind me. This is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who has ever lived. And so what we have here in the Sermon on the Mount, what we have here recorded for us, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is the fullest, it's the longest sermon of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. Uh, it's 111 verses total, covering three chapters. You can actually read the entire Sermon on the Mount in about 10 to 15 minutes, depending on how fast a reader you are. It may take a few of you maybe 20 minutes, so 10 to 20 minutes in length. It is the first sermon that we hear from Jesus as he begins his earthly ministry. 
And so you might think of it as kind of like a, uh, when we have a new president, he gives his inaugural address. It's the first official address we hear from the president in his office uh, as the president. It's kind of the same way here. In fact, one commentator, author John Stott, he referred to the sermon as the, the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered. For it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and do in the kingdom of God. And so the Sermon on the Mount, as we're going to discover here in the next few weeks, really the next few months, this will take us about, uh, you know, about 12 to 15 Sundays we're going to be in this. Uh, it touches on a number of practical and relevant issues, such as anger, lust, marriage, divorce, getting even with people, revenge, giving, prayer, worry, judging, you name it. But it also deals head-on with probably the greatest issue in life. And that is entrance into the kingdom of heaven, living in the kingdom of heaven. And so as we expose ourselves each week here to the x-rays of Christ's words in this sermon, it shows us where we stand in relation to the kingdom of God and eternal life. What we're going to see, hopefully... You see, each and every one of us, my prayer is that as we look at this sermon, you will see whether or not you are a true believer in Jesus Christ. Whether or not you are in the kingdom of God. And if you are a true believer, you will see, hopefully, the degree of authenticity even in your life. No other sermon will confront us the way this sermon does. No other sermon makes us face ourselves like the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon is hard-hitting. It's in your face. It is a shocking message from Jesus Christ. And it is meant to be that way. It was meant to challenge the superficial religion that marked Jesus' day. And so as we unpack this sermon in the coming weeks... It will pierce our hearts with conviction. It will challenge our beliefs and even our behavior. And it will bring guidance into some of the greatest matters of life. And so it's no wonder that another author wrote, Among Jesus' teachings, the Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the most beloved, it's the best known, the least understood, and the hardest to obey. So what I want to do this morning is simply answer one question for us as an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And that is, what is the Sermon on the Mount? And some of you, I know, you're already thinking, well, it's a sermon. Yes, I know. But what is the Sermon on the Mount all about? To answer this question, we really need to understand three things about the sermon. And that is the context of the sermon, the content in the sermon, and the center of the sermon. And so let's look at this here for the next few minutes this morning. Number one, the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And what we find is the context is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven has come on earth. We see this when Matthew tells us in chapter 4, verse 17, look what it says. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, And here was Jesus' one-sentence sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
By the way, the kingdom of heaven is Matthew. Matthew's the one who wrote the gospel of Matthew. Uh, There's four gospels. You're familiar with them. Uh, You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. uh, And they are uh, named after the authors of each of them. And so Matthew is the author of this particular gospel. And the kingdom of heaven is Matthew's customary expression for what other New Testament writers often call the kingdom of God. You may be wondering, why did Matthew call it the kingdom of heaven and not the kingdom of God? Well, Matthew was a Jew, and like many Jews of his day, they would avoid using the word God. They felt it was too holy to even speak of, to even utter. And so they used euphemisms like heaven in order to avoid the word God. And so the kingdom of heaven is is uh, the same thing as the kingdom of God. They're identical. They're interchangeable. The kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Uh, And so here's what I want you to see, though, and understand about the kingdom of heaven. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he comes on the scene, he announces the arrival of the kingdom of heaven in himself, and then he begins to call people to himself to begin to experience that kingdom. That's exactly what we see here in chapter 4. Verse 17, he announces, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand or it's near. Why? Because I'm here. I have come. And then he calls Peter and some of the other disciples that we're familiar with. And he says, I'll make you fishers of men. Come and follow after me. And that's exactly what's going on here. And so we see this summary statement then, a few verses later in chapter 4, after he announces, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come. We see in verse 23, look at it again. It says, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching what? The gospel of the kingdom in healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. So Jesus was busy preaching the gospel of the kingdom and then displaying, in other words, demonstrating the power of the kingdom of heaven. And how did he do that? He did it through his works of healing all kinds of disease and sickness. And so this theme now of the kingdom of heaven, it continues all the way through Matthew chapter 9. In fact, we have a very similar verse in verse 35 of chapter 9. It's almost word for word the same as what we find in verse chapter 4, verse 23. And now you see it in verse 35 of chapter 9. Look what it says. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, and preaching. And you notice, what's he preaching again? He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And notice what he's doing again. Healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And so this section of Matthew, from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 9, is devoted to these two aspects of Jesus' ministry. What two aspects is that? Proclaiming something. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. It is at hand. It's near. Why? Because I am the king and I am here. Repent. And then he displays the power in himself, the authority of himself, the power of the kingdom. And he displays it through these miraculous healings. And that's what you find then after the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 8 and 9. 
one healing, one miracle after another. So guess what? The context then of the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew is what? It's all about the kingdom of heaven. Now, before we move on, there's one more thing we need to understand about the kingdom of heaven. It's in your notes. Coming up on the screen, notice this. There is an already aspect of the kingdom and a not yet aspect. There's an already aspect and a not yet aspect. And here's what I mean by that. The kingdom of heaven has already come. Why? Because Jesus came. But it has not yet fully arrived. Let me elaborate. Most Jews expected the Messiah to be this kind of military and political savior who would free them from Roman opposition and establish a prosperous Jewish kingdom that would lead the world. This king, in their minds, would be greater than any king, any leader, any prophet they've ever seen in their history. They thought this king would give them political freedom and economic prosperity. Their thinking was all external, though, about the kingdom. And although the king had arrived, why? Jesus was here, and the kingdom was at hand. Jesus was not going to allow himself to be mistaken for that sort of king, a genie-like king, where I can just get whatever I want from you. This is why Jesus' first word when he comes on the scene is what? Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, tragically, most, because most of Israel did not repent and they did not accept Jesus Christ as the king, the promised earthly kingdom was postponed. As Matthew would later explain, this literal physical kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament was set aside for a period of time until Jesus comes again to establish that kingdom, what we refer to it as the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign here on earth. Until then, the kingdom of heaven is spiritual and something within you. It's that which governs and controls your heart, your mind, your attitude and worldview. And this spiritual kingdom presently exists only in the hearts of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and have embraced Him as their King. True. Jesus is not ruling the nation of Israel and the world as He one day will when He comes again. But He does rule the lives of those who belong to Jesus by faith. And for this reason, we can say the kingdom of heaven has already come, but it has not yet been fully fulfilled. It hasn't yet been fully arrived yet. We'll look at this more in detail in the coming weeks. And this is where the Sermon on the Mount comes in, and it brings us to the content of the sermon. The content. And the content, as we will see, is living in the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Living in the kingdom. So, step back for a moment. Recap. Here we are. If the context of the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of heaven here on earth, 
then the content of the Sermon on the Mount is all about life in the kingdom of heaven on earth. Remember, Jesus preached what? His one sudden sermon was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus' message now, this elongated message, Sermon on the Mount as it's known, is this is what it means to repent. This is what it means now to belong to the kingdom of heaven. And so the Sermon on the Mount is essentially Jesus detailing for us as his followers, detailing for his disciples what kingdom life is all about here on earth. What it looks like to live in the kingdom of heaven here on earth. In other words, this sermon teaches what it means to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom. We might summarize the Sermon on the Mount this way. The Sermon on the Mount describes kingdom life for kingdom citizens. The theme of the sermon is how to live as kingdom citizens in light of the saving rule of Jesus Christ in our lives and His coming rule on earth. This sermon is essentially the word of King Jesus to his disciples who have embraced his rule in their hearts and over their lives. And since the king has arrived and since he has begun to reign, Jesus now explains how disciples ought to live under his authority. Why? He's the king. And as a king, he has authority and he's going to demonstrate that authority throughout this sermon. And yet Jesus does not tell us we need to live like this, Sermon on the Mount, in order to enter the kingdom. You need to understand this. He's not saying in the sermon, live like this in order to get into the kingdom. Rather, Jesus says that because you are already a citizen of the kingdom, live like this. So what we have here in this sermon are not moral platitudes for the masses. These are expectations of kingdom life for those who call Jesus their king. We know Jesus is preaching to a mixed audience in this sermon. We know that from the first two verses in the setting of the sermon. Jesus is preaching to a mixed crowd of both fans of him and followers of him. What Matthew calls the multitudes or the crowds and then the disciples. Multitudes who have not yet entered the kingdom. But also disciples like Peter and John and Andrew who have entered the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 20, which is kind of the hinge verse of the whole sermon. It's the key verse of the whole sermon here. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that ought to wake us up here. What Jesus says right there in that verse ought to cause us to stop right now. And thanks, wake us up. Because what he's saying is unless our righteousness exceeds that 
of the scribes and the Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but will remain forever in the kingdom of darkness. In other words, the righteousness here is the difference between eternity in heaven and eternity in hell. So in light of what Jesus says in this key verse, we ought to be asking ourselves, well, what kind of righteousness did the Pharisees and scribes have? Given that our righteousness must exceed theirs for entrance into the kingdom. Well, the scribes and Pharisees, they were the religious leaders of the day. They had become experts in the Old Testament law. And so they sought to keep the law with everything they had, with their whole being, their whole life. As such, they sought to protect themselves from breaking the law by keeping a bunch of traditions that were focused on externals. And in doing so, they actually thought to themselves that they could earn righteousness before God. Now the question then becomes, well, who, who can be more righteous than those who spend their whole lives in seeking to be righteous? But listen to how Jesus describes, listen to how he evaluates their righteousness later on in the book of Matthew in chapter 23, verses 25 and 26. Listen to Jesus' words here. He says, What's interesting, uh, the very first words section of the Sermon on the Mount is often referred to as the Beatitudes. We'll look at it next Sunday. The Beatitudes are kind of like a blessing. But here, Jesus' words are, the first word is, woe to you. Woe is kind of a cursing, if you will. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup, so the outside of it may also become clean. And then Jesus gives the clearest illustration of the Pharisees' self-righteousness later on, same chapter. We're in Matthew chapter 23, in verses 27 and 28, when he says, Woe to you again, scribes and Pharisees, and he calls them hypocrites. And then he tells us why. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside. But inside you are full of dead men's bones and every impurity. And in the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people. But inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So here's Jesus' woe to them. Here's his rebuke. He says the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, people who who lived their whole life to try to keep the law and protect themselves by keeping all these man-made traditions, these people, they're purely, all they had was this external righteousness. And Jesus says, listen, that's not enough. It's not enough to be righteous on the outside if you're not also righteous on the inside. So what's this mean for us? We ought to be asking ourselves. How how then? How can we, even now, right now, how can we be righteous on the inside? Because that's what counts. But also on the outside, 
as kingdom citizens. Notice this. The exceeding righteousness that Jesus demands of kingdom citizens. Here it is. Notice. The demand for this exceeding righteousness is not more righteous deeds by human effort. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were trying to achieve. But more righteous hearts by divine grace. Jesus is not saying that you must have a quantitatively greater righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees. In other words, a righteousness that is numerically greater than the Pharisees. It's not that the Pharisees have scored in the low 90s on this holiness test. An entrance into the kingdom of heaven requires a score of 97, but they only have a score of 92. And now you've got to score higher than 92 to gain entrance into the kingdom. That is not what Jesus is talking about. In fact, that misses the whole point altogether. Rather, Jesus is talking about a qualitatively different righteousness altogether. This is not an outer righteousness to show everyone, oh, look at me, how good I am. Look how shiny my whitewashed tomb is. No. Jesus is talking about the heart. He's talking about an inner righteousness that shows how gracious and powerful God is when He does a work on us. Jesus spoke of this righteousness with another Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And in verse 3, Jesus tells this Pharisee, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is what? Born again, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, naturally, he was thinking in terms of externals, as in re-entering your mother's womb. And he's like, Jesus, that's impossible. I've already been born physically once. How can I be born again physically twice? But Jesus told him he must be born of water and the Spirit. That is, he must be given a new heart by God. And so this idea of being born again is precisely what Jesus is getting at here in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 20, when he says that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. In other words, we must have a righteousness that extends beyond the externals, extends beyond the legal conformity to the law, and such an exceeding righteousness, Jesus says, is only possible by God's gift of a new heart. You must be born again. You must trust in Jesus Christ as your king. You must receive him by faith. So how then do we know that we have this exceeding righteousness or this new heart? Is there instant obedience to every command in Scripture when we do? Well, of course not. But know this there will be some evidence of it. There will be some change in our life if we have truly been born again by faith in Jesus Christ. 
And this is, in some measure, what the remainder of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is all about. Life in the kingdom. Because by faith, by being born again, we are now citizens of that kingdom. And now Jesus lays out the expectations of what it means to live in the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And this brings us to the second point here. The evidence, the evidence of this exceeding righteousness that comes by being born again, that comes by faith in Jesus Christ, it should be seen in our life in areas like our attitudes, our values, our desires, our priorities, and our relationships. Jesus begins his sermon by elaborating on these kingdom attitudes and what is called the Beatitudes here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Then Jesus emphasizes kingdom values in chapter 5, verses 17 through 48. In fact, six times Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, when it comes to such issues, topics of life like anger and adultery, divorce, lying, revenge, and love. And then Jesus addressed kingdom desires. He addresses our motives in Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18, when he confronts us with these kind of questions. Why do you pray? What's your motive in praying? Why do you give? What's your motive in giving? Why do you fast? What's your desire with that? What's your motive with that? And then Jesus establishes kingdom priorities for us in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 34. Priorities as life of a kingdom in the kingdom, as a kingdom citizen, priorities when it comes to matters of money and possessions, worry and trust, and what's most important in life. And then lastly, Jesus talks about kingdom relationships. What do our relationships look like now that we're kingdom citizens, now that we're in the kingdom? And he deals with that in chapter 7. The bottom line is this. There should be something different about the lives of Jesus' disciples. Life in the kingdom will look different from life in this world. This is the exceeding righteousness of what Jesus is talking about. So the question then becomes for us to consider here, so do we see this difference in our lives even today? Not perfectly. But do we see evidence of it? Now, as we think about this, and as we think about life in the kingdom of heaven in relation to what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount, let me also say the last thing we need to come away with is this imposing and crushing laundry list of things that we must do in order to be accepted by God. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, and by the way, I would challenge you in light of this sermon series to, to take some time and read through it. Read through it more than once. It takes you 10 to 20 minutes, read, read through it. And when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you should not walk away. Please don't walk away thinking to yourself, Man, I must turn the other cheek in order to be accepted by God. 
I must love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me in order to be accepted by God. I must follow the golden rule perfectly in order to be accepted by God. Please do not read it that way. We are not accepted by God because of anything that we do. We are accepted by God completely and totally because of a perfect Savior who has died in our place and has risen again. Yes, we pray for our enemies, as Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount. We love those who persecute us and we follow the golden rule, but we do these things not in order to earn acceptance before God, but because we already have acceptance before God. And we now want to, as kingdom citizens, those who have been given a new heart through faith in Jesus Christ, we now, we now have this heart's desire to glorify God in everything we do. That's why our heart ought to lean in towards the Sermon on the Mount. Which brings us to the very center of the sermon. And that is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of the sermon. Jesus, why is he the center? Because he is king of heaven and earth. That's why. Now, let me give you a step back from the Sermon on the Mount and give you a big picture of the book of Matthew to help us understand this. The purpose of Matthew's gospel is to show the Jewish people in particular... And us in general now is to show us that Jesus truly is who he claims to be. And that is what? He is king of heaven and earth. We see this truth in the bookends of Matthew's gospel. Notice this in your notes. In Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is the king of the Jews. And by the time you get to chapter 28, the last chapter of the book, we see that Jesus is also not just king of the Jews, he is actually king of the universe. Matthew begins with Jesus' genealogy. You ever wonder what's the point of this long list of names in Matthew chapter 1? The point is to say, as Matthew says in the first verse, that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. That is, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king of the Jews. That's how Matthew begins his gospel. But how does he end the gospel? It ends with what is known as the the Great Commission. Some of you are familiar with that, where Jesus tells his disciples to go and spread the gospel of the kingdom to all peoples across this world. But what did Jesus say before the commission? Well, before the commission, Jesus makes a admission. In fact, he declares an admission in verse 18 when he says, Listen, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he says, go. Now, why would Jesus emphatically declare that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Because Jesus is the king. 
He is the king of heaven and earth. Therefore, as the king, get this, Jesus has supreme authority, and that authority has been given to him by God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Therefore, Jesus is the only one who is worthy of what? Worthy of our allegiance as followers. Worthy of our worship of Him. Why? Because He is our Savior. He's our Messiah. He's the one who has given us the gift of eternal life. He's the one that has brought us into the kingdom of heaven. And so this authority of Jesus, King Jesus, is at the center of the Sermon on the Mount. When you look at the beginning of the sermon, what do you see? And then when you get to the very end of the sermon, what do you see? I'll give you a hint. It is all about the authority of King Jesus. Let me show this to you. First of all, Jesus displayed his authority in the setting of the sermon. Notice what it says again in chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. And seeing the multitudes... He, now that is Jesus, he went up on a mountain. And when it says mountain, don't think of the Rocky Mountains. Think of a, a big, large hill. They called it, instead of a hill, mountains. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying. Now, it's easy to just skim over that, those first two verses. But each of these actions by Jesus such as going up on the mountain, sitting, and then opening his mouth to teach, actually relates to his authority as king. Mountains are important in Matthew's gospel. In fact, several different times we find Jesus on a mountain in this particular gospel. And mountains, by the way, are also rather important elsewhere in the Bible. In fact, one of the first significant mountains in the Bible is Mount Sinai. If you're familiar with Mount Sinai, that's where God speaks to Moses and he gives him the Ten Commandments. And so this mountain now in the Sermon on the Mount is a hint to us that something important is going to happen. And someone important is speaking. Just as God spoke to Moses and Moses then came down from the mountain and spoke to the children of Israel. But so, too, is the posture of sitting. Sitting in the ancient world was a symbol of one's authority. Jewish rabbis in Jesus' day would sit to speak from or about the Scriptures. And so Jesus sat to teach. He opened His mouth. But get this, please see this, but not merely to speak from the Scriptures, not merely to even speak about the Scriptures, but in fact to claim authority of interpretation and application over the Scriptures and even fulfillment of the Scriptures. This is why Jesus says three verses earlier in chapter 5, in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Set it aside. Do away with it. Or the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law, but to do what? To fulfill them. Now that's authority. And so in the past, when God had something to say, He spoke through the prophets. Old Testament prophets, such as Moses and Isaiah, 
Samuel, Jeremiah. But now, Jesus is on the scene. Jesus has come. He's here on earth. And so now we have the authoritative voice of God's Son speaking to us. You say, what does that mean? It means we ought to pay attention. That's what it means. It means we ought to open our hearts to what Jesus, the King, has to say here. Because He speaks with authority as the King. You say, well, just how much authority did He speak from? Oh, let me tell you. When the crowds, when the people, the disciples heard Jesus speak in the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of these three chapters, they were astonished by it. Notice this in your notes. The people were astonished at the authority of Jesus' teaching. Here in verses 28 and 29 in Matthew chapter 7, it says, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having what? Authority. And not as the scribes. And so the first reaction from these first hearers of this sermon was, Wow, what authority! Who is this guy? Who is this teacher? This guy speaks like no one we've ever heard before. He has a weight to him that even our best scribes don't speak with. In other words, the people on the side of the mountain that day let me tell you, they were blown away by the authority of Jesus' teaching. Now, I'll have to admit, I don't necessarily expect you to be blown away by my teaching, but I do hope you to be blown away by the teaching of Jesus Christ. Because each and every Sunday, when we come here, we're going to open up the Word of God, and hopefully through the power and the Spirit of God, I will do, present it to you. It's the authority of Jesus Christ that comes bearing on our souls each and every Sunday morning. And we ought to be blown away by it. Now the question is, how will you respond to King Jesus? How will you respond to His authority as King? Now we live in a culture that hates authority. We live in a culture that rebels against authority. Why? Because we are all our own authority unto ourselves. We make our own rules. We do our own thing. We live our own lives. And who are you to tell me what to do? Well, in this case, Jesus is the one. Jesus is king. And we ought to open our hearts and minds and submit ourselves to his authority as king. And like every good preacher, Jesus puts us on the spot and he calls us to respond. He impresses upon us at the end of his sermon the seriousness of what he has said. First of all, Jesus makes clear in chapter 7 that our options in this life are limited. Now, as Americans, we love options. We think we have a gazillion of them. And for the most part, we do. But when it comes to this, when it comes to kingdom life, we don't have a lot of options. In fact, we only have two. 
Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And so Jesus is telling us that there's only one road that leads to life. And I know that's not PC, but that's Jesus' words. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there's only one road then that leads to destruction. And Jesus says, everybody on the planet is on one of those two roads. Your options are limited. Either you're on the road that leads to life or you're on the road that leads to destruction. And the next Jesus tells us, listen, the fruit of our lives is evident. There's no denying it. There's no hiding it. It's right there for you to see and everybody else to see. Jesus tells us in chapter 7, verses 15 through 23, he says, listen, there is one tree that bears good fruit, and there's one tree that bears bad fruit, and everyone falls into one of those two categories. And so Jesus is basically saying to us even right now, either you have repented of your sins, and Jesus has changed your heart, and now you are producing good fruit with your life, such as the fruit of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Or you are still living in the flesh and you are bringing forth the fruit of the flesh. And it is evident. You can deny it, but it's there for everybody to see. And then finally, Jesus says that the consequences of all this is eternal. This is not a temporal reality or a game show that we're playing. Nothing else in our lives is on par with this. In verses 24 through 27, Jesus says that when the storms hit, one house stands on the rock and one house crashes in the sand. And when Jesus says that there is a storm coming, he's not talking about the, quote, storms of life. Now, yes, those storms are real. And those storms are oftentimes painful. Jesus is talking about, though, a cataclysmic reality, a devastating storm of God's future judgment. It may be tonight or it may be a thousand years from now, but Jesus is saying it's coming. Are you ready? And Jesus reminds us that it doesn't matter how we propped up our house. By the way, the house, symbolic for our lives, doesn't matter how we propped up our life or how we fixed it up, or what other people think about it. Jesus is saying, unless your house, unless your life is built on the rock of Jesus Christ, your life will fall in stunning fashion when future judgment comes. Now, in light of who Jesus is as king, and what Jesus says in this sermon with authority, the question begs, how will we respond? So each and every Sunday we come, what will our heart's mindset be? There's only one response. That is to fall at his feet in repentance of sin, in faith in Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus said that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So I ask you, do you see an exceeding righteousness to your life? Do you have a new heart? Have you been born again? Do you have the righteousness of Christ? If not, please listen to me. God's judgment hangs over you. 
But there's good news. Always oh, there's good news. It doesn't have to be that way. The good news is that you don't have to face God's judgment so long as you are in Christ and His exceeding righteousness covers you. That is beautiful, is it not? That is Jesus' invitation to us all. And so if you haven't yet, I plead with you, fall at His feet. He's the King. Fall at His feet in repentance of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. For there is only one way that you may enter the kingdom of heaven and have eternal life. And it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray even now that you would make our hearts tender. You would open up our minds. You would help us to see ourselves in light of this introductory, this overview of Jesus' sermon here. Lord, you would reveal to us. You would make it known. And we would see whether we are true believers in Jesus Christ, whether we are truly in the kingdom of heaven, or whether we are on the outside looking in. And Lord, help us to see that you are inviting us to yourself. You are inviting us to participate in your kingdom by repenting of our sin and putting our faith in you as our king. And so, Lord, give us faith to believe. Give us faith to respond as we need to as the instruments play. They're going to play just a one chorus here. And as they do, you respond in prayer as you see fit. And then Zach and the praise team will lead us in a chorus of song as we prepare for our offering. Thank you.